that sound you're hearing right now? The hum? Yeah. It's the sound of a sprawling network of high-speed switching systems, rectifiers, and capacitors, all working to deliver a pulsing current of electricity to a series of copper cables that run about 25 feet underneath the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. These cables send a pulse of electricity out into the water up to 34 times per second, which stuns fish and prevents them from making their way upstream. This electrical barrier has been here about 45 minutes west of the Chicago downtown since 2002. The canal is this 30-mile man-made waterway that links the Chicago River to the Des Plaines River and by extension connects the Great Lakes to the Mississippi River. According to the Army Corps of Engineers, it's the only known link between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi watershed. All of this exists here because if you were to follow this river 20 miles to the southwest toward Peoria, Illinois, you'd be on water that contains what we were told is the highest population density of silver and bighead carp anywhere in the world. If any of the carp downstream of the barrier ever made it into Lake Michigan or the rest of the Great Lakes, they would have to swim right past this spot. I'm Sydney Weidel. And I'm Bonnie Willison. And you're listening to Introduced. Yeah, it's good to clarify right away that when people talk about Asian carp, they're actually referring to four different species of carp. Silver and bighead carp, they are filter feeders, they eat algae, and they kind of are constantly filtering things out of the water. And these are the two species that you hear about that are jumping. They're jumpers. Um, And then black carp, they eat snails and mussels, and grass carp eat aquatic plants. But lumping them together as Asian carp doesn't represent the fact that each of these fish occupies a slightly different niche, and each has the potential to unleash its own distinct species of chaos into the Great Lakes and its watershed. Do you get this feeling that when people talk about invasive species in the Great Lakes, like, they talk about Asian carp a lot? Like, if I asked you to name a Bucks player, like, there are so many that you could name, but... Mm-hmm. You might say Giannis, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like Um, kind of like that. Thanks for putting me on the spot and coming up with a basketball reference because I, um, not my area strong suit. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to let you fill in the blank and then I got, I didn't want to, you know. um, But yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people talk about them because they, I don't know, they're very visible and, um. It's kind of this like looming, looming problem, I'd say. Where carp have been introduced, they, they've they upended entire ecosystems and caused a lot, a lot of chaos. Yeah, and they all reproduce a lot faster than native fish. And they filter so much every day. Um, silver and, and big head carp, at least, filter like 40% of their body weight every day out of the lakes. And grass carp can eat their weight in plants every day. Have you have you ever seen videos of carp hitting people in the face when they're boating? I feel like I have, yeah. Do okay. you have one in mind? Oh yeah. <laughs> if I just looked it up and there were so many results about that. Um, okay. Can you just Google flying fish slaps woman in the face? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
And then is it the 15 second video? Yeah. Okay, let me watch it. Oh, wow. That looked like it was really hard. It's like its face hit her, not even like its tail. I know. Like, why did it do that? Yeah. That's so scary. Um, anyway, there is so much fear and uncertainty about what could happen if carp wind up in the Great Lakes. But as far as we know, Bighead and Silver Carp haven't migrated into the Great Lakes yet. And the barrier might be the reason why. Yeah, the more I learned about carp, I, I just became more interested in this barrier. And so I started doing a lot of phone calling and emailing and... I was really excited when I found out we'd be able to go down to the canal and they would give us a tour and we could see these electric fish barriers for ourselves. How are you feeling? Feeling... Feeling excited. (laughs) But also, we're a little lost. (laughs) We woke up at the crack of dawn and me and you and Moira, the communications lead for Wisconsin Sea Grant, we started driving south. We drove down to Romeoville, Illinois, to where the Army Corps of Engineers operates this barrier, which was roughly a two-hour drive from where we are in Madison. It says fish dispersal. I think we go up there. Okay, this road. Okay. It was so hard to find. You could see the canal at points from along the highway, but then when you got off the highway, you were just driving down this road for, like, a very long time. And... There was that enormous, enormous refinery that just went on for, like, miles. Also, the world's largest wastewater treatment plant is just upstream on the canal, so it's, like, kind of all of this, like, industry and the back door to everything that's happening in Chicago felt like it was kind of right here in this canal. But I think we should get out and say, let's make something happen, people. (laughs) Hi. Nice to meet you. We met a few colleagues from Manitowoc and Bristol and Stevens Point. We're pressing the delivery button. Hello, we're here to see your carp. Oh, that's today. Oh, no, they're not here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be. Someone expecting you guys, or? We're here. For a tour, we're Wisconsin Sea Grant. Um, I'm supposed to be meeting Chuck. Do you know where we should go for that? Uh, let me go get somebody. You can come in here. Okay, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I sound like a maniac at the end of that. Um, I'm just <laughs> laughing so hard about seeing the carps on the wall. <laughs> I also feel like it's a little ironic because it's like the one species they're try- they're like basically devoting their careers to stopping, but they still like have them as decoration, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Except <laughs> like was it wasn't of. decoration because they're not like specifically, they're kind of scary looking fish, I thought, which is like a yeah. subjective opinion, obviously. In my head, I thought that there was going to be like an actual physical barrier which there is it's just underwater and you can't see it but I thought that like it was going to be obvious like oh yeah that's where the barrier is and that was not the case um the people who are there are so 
so fascinating because like they're engineers, right? They work for the Corps of Engineers and they know they have to know one so much about how electricity works because they're dealing with all of these very complex systems and these generators and creating this enormous electric field. But they also have to know about fish biology. So it's just a very interesting niche of people who, who spend time down there. Yeah, using electricity to control fish is not a new thing. So you know how like you probably wouldn't want to drop a hairdryer in a bathtub because <laughs> you would get shocked. Mm. Um, yeah, it's kind of like that, except you have like part of the water that has a current and the fish starts swimming toward it. The charge on the front of the fish is going to be greater than the charge on the back. And that's going to move all this electricity through the fish's body. And that actually doesn't, if it's the right amount of electricity, that'll just stun the fish. It doesn't harm the fish at all. The fish just kind of like floats. Once the fish floats out of that field again, it'll, it'll be fine. It'll just snap out of, snap out of that. But using electricity to control aquatic invasive species is something that the Army Corps of Engineers pioneered here in Romeoville with this barrier project. Hi there. Hey. Folks, I assume I'm with the Sea Grant? Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, I'm Chuck Shea. Um, we can go in here and sit down for a minute. Let's see if we can grab somebody else here. Um, I'm, I'm the project manager for the barriers. So I usually work in our, well, I'm down here visiting quite a bit, but I'm actually stationed in our downtown Chicago office. Chuck said that the scale of this project makes it unique. It's a fairly un, it's it's fairly unusual to pulse electricity like 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 this. It's uh, not uh, not completely unheard of, but it's it takes some specialized equipment. It's, well, I don't I don't know the details of all the frequencies and things like that, but they do a lot of a lot of radar stations. The big military radar stations have a lot of pulsed electricity in them, is my understanding. One of our contractors that we're using, I know, also works in in the field of of, of doing post power with uh, with military radar stations. So there's something there's something there too, and probably probably some other activities. I, I would imagine some of these places like Argonne National Laboratory or some people that are doing this like really advanced uh, uh, research on you know electrons and these accelerators for electrons and stuff probably have some of this type of high-level electrical equipment too. We also met with Joe, who is an engineer at the Carp Barrier, and he works there every day on the ground to keep the electricity running. So then we get a quick orientation. There's a couple of basic things we need to be careful with on site. All right, so basically, we're putting all this electricity into the canal and not all of it stays there. Some of it is coming back up into the ground. So any kind of metal could be energized. So we don't, we try not to have two hands touching things. I mean, nobody's getting shocked out here, but that's, you know, we gotta be uh, aware of things like that. The, uh, the train tracks, the gates don't always go down when a train's coming and don't always go up when there's, when there's no train coming. We have a refinery right here. And if we start hearing horn blasts, we get out of here. There's nobody here with a, a pacemaker, anything like that, other than that. Be all right. What would that feel like if I'm in a boat and I touch that water? I mean, what what impact would that? Well, don't do that. No, <laughs> I'm start with that. I'm, I'm <laughs> that. Yeah, that's the question that probably is biggest for everyone when they hear about the electric barrier. It's like, if I fall in, will I die? Or what? What does that feel like? 
<laughs> well, yeah, and he said, Chuck said that, like, if you touch it, you're probably not going to die, but it's, like, the mm. the pulsing that, like, freaks your heart out. And sense. so if you're in the water, and then, like, if you're in the water and, like, your body is freaking out, um, you could drown easily. So the barriers are here because... If any of the carp downstream of the barrier ever made it into Lake Michigan or the rest of the Great Lakes, they would have to swim right past this spot. But the barrier is really here because back in 1900, the city of Chicago had this major problem. Because up until that point, it dumped all of its sewage into the lake, which was also where it got all its drinking water from. And that was all fine until in the 1800s, the population just started expanding really rapidly and a lot of people started to get really sick, things like cholera, um, a lot of a lot of illness from drinking that water that was also was also where all the sewage was going. And so <clears throat> Chicago had this genius idea. It was like we should just dig a canal that reverses the flow of the Chicago River and sends all of that sewage out toward the Mississippi. And so and so they started digging. So St. Louis, which is down the Mississippi a little bit, was like, absolutely not. You cannot do that. Um, <laughs> so they, they tried to set up this injunction. They took Chicago to court. And Chicago, meanwhile, was like, oh, yeah, we, we actually are going to be doing this. And so, so it was this whole controversy. controversy and um, the engineers who were building the canal ended up finishing it, like, extremely extremely quickly in the middle they opened it in the middle of the night and then by the time the case made it to court Chicago basically said well the river's flowing already I don't know what we can do about this now and so <laughs> so that is the way it has been <laughs> since 1900 um and a for wild origin story I know and for nearly a century it all went according to plan and the sewage went out toward St. Louis and the Mississippi River, and it opened up the Great Lakes to transit coming up from the Mississippi. So there's a lot of exchange happening along the canal and like between places on the Great Lakes and now places on the, Missis on the Mississippi who could easily move goods back and forth because of the canal. But the really unintended consequence was not only were goods moving back and forth, but so were living so organisms. Why don't we walk this way, and we can stop and talk about more questions when we look at some things in Barrier 2B. And then it, it's time to actually enter the barrier. Basically, we, we walk outside until we get to, there's just a set of kind of littler buildings that have all the equipment that is needed to run the electric barrier. They take all the electricity from just the municipal grid and then they have to run it down into these copper cables that run underneath the, the canal, like 25 feet down, and those create this electrical field in the water, which is what deters the carp. And there's a series of three of these barriers along the river, and one thing that was really emphasized is that redundancy is critical to keeping this operation successful. Yeah, I feel like a lot of their job is just making sure everything is running um, and that if something goes down, we have a backup to a generator. And then if that backup generator goes down, there's a backup plan for that. The canal itself is 160 feet across, which is just big enough for two barges to pass each other. Actually, while we were there, we kept seeing 
barges coming up and down the river. And then finally, we got to go see the site of where they're building a new barrier and the voltage is higher in this one. So it's just to add more defense. Wisconsin Sea Grant and the Center for Great Lakes Literacy are proud to bring you the Aquatic Invaders Attack Pack, a grab-and-go teaching tool to educate students and the public about aquatic invasive species. Sydney, what's your favorite thing in the Attack Pack? I love all of the specimens. There's a preserved sea lamp right inside each pack, which I think is amazing. And the packs also include little resin blocks with a lot of different specimens like the frosty crayfish and round goby and a lot more. And it was my first time seeing some of these species in real life, which was kind of cool. How about you? I love the cutouts of Big Head and Silver Carp and their life size. So I can imagine a kid standing next to one and getting a sense of how big that these fish can get. Each pack includes these items and more, along with a guide with curricula and activities. If you're a Wisconsin resident, you can borrow an attack pack and have it delivered to your local library free of charge. Visit the Educational Resources tab at seagrant.wisc.edu for more information. So back in the 1960s, people began to bring Asian carp from China to the U.S. to control weeds in their ponds. And, and this was happening a lot in the southern United States. And a little while ago, we asked our Sea Grant Aquatic Invasive Species Specialist Tim Campbell to tell us more about how carp became so widespread in the U.S. And he actually had experienced carp stalking personally growing up. I know when I grew up in Iowa fishing in one of uh, our friend's farm ponds, it was a great day when we stocked our grass carp into those ponds because it was so overrun with plants um, and they couldn't afford to continually treat it with herbicides and didn't want to, but two carp really helped keep the plants under control and made it so we could fish and enjoy this small farm pond, which is pretty cool. Um, little did I know. <laughs> yeah, it it is interesting because that really shows why people were importing these fish. Like they are really useful to people who want to have like really clear ponds. You know, the grass carp will eat all your weeds. And then I'm, I'm sure, you know, Tim now would absolutely, you know, never do that. But when people, <laughs> <laughs> when people don't know, I guess is the, the thing. Yeah. And one way or another, the carp escaped from those ponds, and some of them wound up in the Mississippi River and swum up its tributaries, including the Des Plaines. But they've also found their way into lakes and rivers across the Midwest. So I've told you that I've been to Kentucky before for an Asian carp conference, right? Right. And I'm so intrigued. <laughs> like, the more I learn about carp, the <laughs> cooler that sounds to me. I know. It's it's really funny to look back on because I didn't really know much about Asian carp at that point. Like, I was just going there to film it. So um, this is, it's really something that I never imagined myself um, going to. So um, I, we get there and I'm suddenly surrounded by all these carp experts. And immediately I started hearing stories like 
Dwayne Chapman, he was showing me or a group of people, like, he was pointing out these white stains that he had on his baseball cap, and he was saying it's because he was hit by a carp um, when he was out on a boat, and the carp are slimy, and so they leave these white stains, and he was saying that on a lot of his clothing, he has, like, these white stains on them, and I was immediately like, what is happening here? And... During this conference, we actually got to go out on boats on the Kentucky Lake and Lake Barkley, which are in Kentucky, um, really big lakes. And so it was there that I witnessed Silver and Big Head Carp for the first time. And when we were driving the boat, when we got to go like a slow to medium pace, these fish started just like jumping out of the water. And I was really amused at first. Um, so I want to show you this video of Asian carp in Kentucky Lake. Oh my god. What do you think? You don't have to watch the whole thing if you don't want. I, I need to? <laughs> That's absurd. Oh, like all of a sudden, the water is, the water is super, super calm and then all of a sudden, it just starts foaming and so many carp are just flying out of the water. Like it looks like carp are potentially like five feet in the air. Do you think that's accurate to say? I feel like that's accurate. It also seems like in this one little area, it seems like there's a thousand carp that are jumping at once. This is the most carp that I've ever seen like, they obviously have a ton of big head and silver carp. And I I just wanted to know more about how that has affected life in the region. Like, the just everyday life, the economy, and tourism. So I started looking, and I, I looked into the Kentucky Lake Convention and Visitors Bureau. And I thought maybe I could interview their executive director. But as I was Googling, one of the first things to pop up was this article from late November 2019. And... The article was really short, only five sentences, and it, it said, Visitors have declined at the lake over the past few years due to the infestation of Asian carp, an invasive species that has negative impact on fishing. Because of the de- decrease in revenue, Executive Director Randy Newcomb says he talked to the board and decided it would be best to resign. So I, I couldn't talk to him, obviously. Oh, I can hear you now. Oh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. But fortunately, I was able to talk to Elena Blevins. My name is uh, Elena Blevins, and I am currently serving as the interim uh, director for the Kentucky Lake Convention and Visitors Bureau. Due to budget constraints, unfortunately, we had to um, slim our workforce. Uh, so our our executive director had to um, resign. So I have now stepped into that role. Um, and will be the official executive director come July, once we begin our new fiscal years. For someone who's never been to Marshall County, um, what is it like there? Like, And what, what do the lakes look like? Uh, well, our lakes are beautiful. A lot of people, the most common response I get is, wow, I didn't realize it was so big. <laughs> um, we actually um, get, we have just about as much miles of shoreline as the state of Florida. 
along our lakes. Oh my gosh, so, really? Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Um, some of the best sunsets, I believe, that you can find, in my opinion. But yeah. um, so, and Marshall County itself is, is um, I would say, we're kind of your average sort of rural um, small town America. Uh, we're very uh, unique in that way that we are just kind of a good old fashioned small town with a lot of small town charm and vibe and yeah. um, a lot of good mom and pop shops, uh, whether they're restaurants that are locally owned or resorts that are locally owned. I'm curious about Asian carp in Kentucky Lake. Um, could you talk about what the lake was like kind of before they came in, if you know, and then... Um, that process of them kind of becoming a big population? I think if I, memory serves me correctly, I think the first carp was spotted in Kentucky Lake. I think it was 2007, 2008, you know, and for a long time it went unchecked and for a long time it didn't seem like a threat. Mm. Um, it wasn't until the fish started getting big that it became a really yeah. noticeable problem um i think people just underestimated the size that they would grow um for the average boater and the average sort of family who's just hanging out at the lake on the weekend i would say that that has remained pretty consistent um what really sort of took a hit was our fishing industry have you ever been to a fishing tournament no have you <laughs> no, I, I really knew nothing about them. Um, yeah. But apparently... How does that work? <laughs> I have a lot um, of questions. I know. So anglers use special instruments like side scan sonar. So it's like this instrument you have in your boat that kind of like maps out uh, populations of fish that you can like you can kind of see through the water. They know these fish inside and out. Um, and they use all kinds of really intense rigs and lures and everything. There's actually a, a pretty big flogging population of for fishing competitions and competitors. So I was looking through those a little bit. Um, but I, I was kind of imagining like in Kentucky Lake that there might be like one really big fishing tournament a year. But actually Elena clarified that they actually have them all throughout the year at Kentucky Lake from March to October. When those tournaments happen it brings you know more people into your restaurants more people into your shops more people into your hotels your lodging establishments so I mean it had a ripple effect it really did we went from having two of our most profitable years to now one of our you know lowest on record unfortunately I mean it really just kind of came to a halt uh, and I wouldn't and the crazy thing about it is the Asian carp, um, it's an issue. No one's downplaying that. Mm -hmm. uh, it is affecting the fishery because just of the sheer masses of them. Um, it is creating some sort of food competition, dietary, dietary competition for the bass and the crappie mm -hmm. uh, because they, they rely on the same food sources. Right. Um, so, but there's also a number of other things that have attributed to the bass population being in such sort of a fluctuation over the past couple of years. It's, you know, also due to weather patterns and water levels. The Asian carp just became such a loud issue um, that it just sort of became undeniable. And I mean, we weren't necessarily prepared for the effect that the, the PR 
the, the public relations side of it, we weren't, we weren't yeah. necessarily expecting the gravity yeah. of what people were saying. Was it mostly um, anglers that were coming that were kind of getting giving this this PR, or how did how did this word get out so loudly? It, I mean, yeah, it's. I think it really sort of it originated um, within that angling community. Not to, and I'm not trying to place blame or anything. They were yeah. the one who saw it. They saw it becoming an issue, and they are the ones who said, "You guys need to do something about this." I mean, it had to be done. It happened in a blink of an eye. Really? I mean, all it really took was one sort of live streaming of a weigh-in of at a tournament um, where the, the anglers were voicing their frustration and just, you know, kind of, we hate to see this happening here, um, you know, and it really, social media is just, it's a scary thing. And it was... I mean, it just really kind of brought things to a screeching halt within 18 months, which you really just would not think could happen. Sure enough, with six months later, we were like, it was just tournaments were backing out. And, you know, within a year, it was just, we had sort of where we're at now, where our budget had fallen by 25%. Um, and I, I think local businesses have, have felt um, they may not necessarily be two, putting two and two together, but mm. I think everyone in our community is kind of feeling where is, you know, why are we down or why, you know, why are we yeah. kind of seem to be doing worse this year? It doesn't seem any different, but a lot of it is just because those anglers that they had become so dependent on to come year after year, tournament after tournament, um, haven't been within the last year to two years. In 2013, I pulled the, that report, and it we had on we had 55 tournaments on Kentucky Lake alone, mm -hmm. um, and then in 2018 we had 30 on Kentucky Lake. Let's see, in 20 in 2013, the number of bass that were recorded as caught during these tournaments was 11,325. And in 2018, it was 3,237. That's a wild decrease. It's a really big decrease. And that was for 2018. And 2019 tournament numbers are likely to be lower. But Elena is confident that the lakes will improve for anglers and vacationers. You know, they had a really good spawn last year, and they've been putting time into mitigating this Asian carp issue. And I asked her what she would say to a community upriver which hasn't experienced Asian carp yet. It is, I think the biggest thing that I could tell someone with who's in my shoes, or similar to in mm -hmm. my shoes, is to have a communication plan um, and a PR sort of crisis management plan. Mm. Um, that, that's what really hurt us the most is just not having a prepared response for once the attention hit. We just oh. didn't, we didn't have a way to respond effectively that was going to preserve our fishing industry. If you are getting rumblings of carp in your waters, then you need to immediately start working on a PR crisis management communication plan to help navigate 
the conversation on social media. So at this point, Silver and Big Head Carp, you know, they've they've been in the Mississippi. They are still moving north. They're moving into tributaries, and they're they're really close to the barrier. And the same for grass carp. They're even a bit more widespread, like scattered throughout like ponds and streams where Big Head and Silver Carp are not. And seeing as the carp are getting closer and closer to the Great Lakes, I just wanted to know what would happen if they made it into Lake Michigan and beyond into all the rest of the Great Lakes. Titus Seilheimer, Wisconsin Sea Grant's fisheries outreach specialist that we talked to in the last episode, talked to me about how carp would affect the Great Lakes. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a good question. There has been research, um, you know, as a wetland ecologist uh, who studies fish habitat, um, the, you know, grass carp are concerning because they eat plants, they disturb plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, the sub, the underwater plants and wetlands are really what makes those habitats great fish spawning and nursery habitat. So, you know, kind of my first warning sign with grass carp are, you know, that could be pretty big impacts to those coastal wetlands. And uh, lots of species uh, rely on coastal wetlands in the Great Lakes, uh, you know, either for one of their life cycle, life stages, or they go in there to feed, or some of the food they eat comes from there. So at the same time, you know, they, they are silver carp and big head carp are filter feeders. They uh, swim along uh, with their mouths open. They eat uh, algae and zooplankton. And when we think about the, the current condition of the Great Lakes, where we've had a lot of changes, a lot of shifts in the food web from quagga mussels, which mm-hmm. filter feed algae, maybe there's not a lot of food for Uh, the Asian carp Mm -hmm. in places like the middle of Lake Michigan. But the bigger concern, at least in Lake Michigan, is that silver and big head and grass carp would thrive more near the shores where there's nutrients from runoff rather than um, in the middle of the lake. I was thinking about like how how we could actually figure figure this out. And there's actually a whole network of scientists who work on similar lakes around the world, like really big freshwater lakes. And maybe we can see what is happening in their lakes to get a sense of what is happening, what would happen in the Great Lakes. So take Lake Balaton. It's in Hungary. It's the largest lake in Eastern Europe, but it's it's still one fifth the size of Lake Erie. So, you know, not great lakes big, but big for Eastern Europe. I got in contact with Dwayne Chapman, one of the U.S. Geological Survey's leading Asian carp experts, and he told me about the big head and silver carp that are causing trouble in Lake Balaton. And they have these enormous big head and silver carp running around in there, and they're eating up all the food, and they would like to be rid of them. Uh, Mm -hmm. So in much the same way that we would like to be rid of them here. Have you found that, you know, what what the effects of the silver and big head carp would be in the Great Lakes at all, or in Lake Erie? Well, we don't have enough data yet, and uh, again, they haven't reached super high abundances there. They were at much higher abundances than Lake Balaton because they are being stocked there. Silver and big head carp were initially stocked in Lake Balaton so people could farm them, but it turns out that they don't reproduce well in Lake Balaton for some reason, so they stopped stocking them. Um, but ever since, the carp have been outcompeting native species. But fortunately, 
the carp populations have been declining on their own in that lake, and it's too soon to say how they would fare in Lake Erie, but at least we have the opportunity to see how these fish behave in really large lakes across the world. Um, and before I let Dwayne go, I just had one more question. It would be interesting to interview someone who was there when they caught the carp above the barrier in Chicago. Um, do you know? Mm -hmm. Do you know who who was there at that point? Um, well, I don't know uh, all the people that were there. In fact, Kevin Irons is right here. He may uh, he was probably involved in that. Uh, oh. He's sitting there across the room. I could ask him <laughs> if you want want some uh, information on on that particular time when they caught that one fish. Actually, there's been two yeah, fish be caught good. above the barrier. Okay. Uh, I'll ask him if you can go and talk to him. Sure. Hold on a second. Okay. Yeah, just take the phone. Hello, Kevin Irons, Illinois DNR. Hi, Kevin. This is Bonnie. I'm from Wisconsin Sea Grant. I was just talking to Dwayne, and I'm looking to interview someone who was there when they um, caught the the two carp that were above the barrier in Chicago. When I talked to Dwayne, he was at a meeting about aquatic invasive species. Did you know that when you initiated the phone call? I, I knew he was going to be at a conference. Um, I guess I didn't exactly realize that he was going to be around all these invasive species experts, which I should have milked that opportunity more than I did. But um, <laughs> Just pass me around. <laughs> I know, right? I kept being, yeah. I wanted to be like, uh, you know, next, next. But they, they were like, um, we have to go to a, a panel now. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> but yeah, Kevin Irons was apparently right across the table when I spoke to Dwayne. And Kevin leads the Asian carp efforts for the Illinois DNR. And so he told me about what happened in 2010. Uh, the one in 2010 was in Lake Calumet. And one of the first times we, maybe in the first day, we used contracted commercial fishermen. Hey, come here, use your skills to see if you can catch or uh, detect some fish. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first day he caught this big head carp. Yeah, Kevin wasn't in his current position back in 2010, but he said that at that point, they had detected some eDNA from silver carp when they were testing above the barrier. What's eDNA? So eDNA is a way to test the water for fish cells to see what fish are in that water. So even though they thought there might be a silver carp that got through the barrier, they found a big head, which was surprising and also really alarming. But Kevin said he wasn't surprised to see that the fish was in Lake Calumet, which is six miles from Lake Michigan, it's above the barrier, and it has a lot of plankton, a lot of algae blooms. It's kind of a good place for carp to survive. And so after that really alarming moment, they searched and searched, but they didn't find any other carp. So then since 2010, you had been testing the area or um, fishing the area still, and then um, what happened when they found the silver carp in 2017? Yeah, so I was sitting at my desk. It was an OMG moment, um, 9.44 in the morning, I believe, uh, June 22nd, the same day. No um, way. That they caught the one in 2010. No, really. <laughs> so, so anyways, uh, and the same fishermen, and they called me, and they said, uh, we caught a silver cup. So immediately, I mean, that's a concern to us. So we were in response mode. They put up net around the, it was in a marina. They put the net around a marina 
they stopped. They, they took some photographs. They put it in the cooler. We didn't want those fish to get away. Uh, we dispatch CPOs. We handle it like a, a criminal investigation. What CPOs? Uh, we put a tag on a conservation police officer. Oh, okay. So we dispatch them to go then take possession of this. And then we take that to uh, Southern Illinois University where they can do some additional tests. Do you want to hear the postmortem on this, this fish? Uh, yeah, I want to hear the postmortem. <laughs> so it was a four-year-old male silver carp. It originated in the Illinois and Middle Mississippi watershed. It spent a quarter of its life, so I guess a year, in the Des Plaines River watershed. That's where it was found. And they still don't know how it got there. Kevin is still mystified about how an adult fish could get through three electric barriers, 12 to 13 miles worth of fencing as well. And so after they found that carp in 2017, they had an aggressive response where they captured 20,000 additional fish, just looking through to see if there was any more carp, hoping that there wasn't, and they didn't find any other ones. So obviously this was a really big moment for for Kevin, and I bet it must have been huge at, at the barrier, back at the barrier too. Yeah, that is such a cursed story, like, that it happened on the same day. Um, right? Yeah. Back at the barrier, we asked Chuck about about those two carp too and he seemed just as mystified but one thing that he emphasized was that it would be one like Kevin said extremely hard for the carp to make it through this system of barriers unaided and two that between Romeoville and Lake Calumet the channel it passes through these extremely industrial areas the water is very polluted I mean it's four miles down from what is truly the largest wastewater treatment plant in the world. Um, 70% of the water coming through that canal is affluent, apparently. Um, so there's not a lot of food in there for carp to eat. Mm. Just very, very poor habitat. Like a carp would have to be very desperate or out of its little carp mind if it wanted to make that journey. So... So he, he was puzzled by it as well. He also said that they track the carp population front rigorously. So that's like where the carp are now. And that has remained roughly 20 miles downstream for a pretty long time. It seems like the, uh, the location of the Asian carp has been pretty stable uh, for, for some time now. And that's the good news for us. But do you think that it's inevitable that one day the carp are going to make it to the barrier. And what do you think that day is going to be like? I don't know. It's hard not to be cynical and just say, like, aren't they going to keep, you know, trying to get to new territory? And I just feel like it, it is kind of inevitable. What do you think? Right. There's something, and we were talking about this earlier, there's something um, about it that just feels like a doomsday countdown almost like watching the progression of these fish moving up from pool to pool to pool like past Mm -hmm. past these dams and locks as we visited the barrier i just kept thinking about that very thing like these people are spending their career like waiting for this one day and trying to prevent this one species of fish from coming and what what they think is going to happen i guess so i did asked Chuck about 
you know, what what he thinks about if the carp are going to make it and what that would be like for him. Well, in general, any advance would be a bad thing so <laughs> for everybody. So, I, yeah, I would say we, we wouldn't be happy to hear that. But we, we've, we've done a lot of research and, and we, we have a lot of redundancy now and more coming. So I think we're, we're in a good position to stop them should they, should they get here. We're ready. We're ready if they do get here. We hope they never do, but we're ready if they get here. <laughs> In fact, the Army Corps is in the process of building another, even more powerful barrier. And that construction was underway when we visited. This one is slated to go online sometime in 2021. This is the new barrier. It is going to be, have, be more powerful than even either part of barrier two. And it is under construction right now. But the whole time we're hearing about this, the real obvious question in our minds is, why we keep spending more and more money building these systems when the alternative would be to just shut the canal. That's, that's often the first question of people, and a good first question is, well, if you're worried about it, just plug it, and then the problem is solved. It's, it's a complicated issue. Some people argue that it's complicated because this closing the canal would hinder all of the trade that moves up and down, up and down it. But... What Chuck said that struck me as the biggest obstacle is that all of the greater Chicago area since 1900 has been built so that all of its wastewater gets channeled through this wastewater treatment plant, and then that wastewater eventually ends up in the canal. So if you close the canal, you would essentially have to replumb Chicago and all of its suburbs as long as electricity is flowing into the canal, the hope that everyone is relying on is that the carp will not make it past Romeoville. I mean, every, everybody understands that, that that's the ultimate mission. That's what this is all about. Um, I think the biggest thing we all focus on is maintaining power in the water. That's, that's the number one credo out here. Never, ever, 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 ever let there be no power in the water. So as long as there is electricity flowing into that water, in theory, the carp are not going to make it past this point. But in the event they did, is Wisconsin prepared? Um, yeah, I don't think we're. I don't think we're prepared. Um, I don't. You know, it's. I think one of the challenges, and, and it's the same with you know something like climate change. You know, when you talk to fisheries managers about what they're worried about, it's what's happening this year. It's maybe five years and. You know, I think this is still, it's kind of a big question mark. And I don't, I don't know how much, actually, I don't know how much you could even prepare for it. Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Willison and Sydney Wydell. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at Grant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institutes. We'd love to hear from you. Send in your questions and comments to bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Thanks for tuning in.